So good evening, everyone, and welcome to our new series, Pass It On, looking at the book of 2 Timothy. So I wonder what that phrase, pass it on, makes you think. So I know there's a good few rugby fans here in Kirkpatrick, so maybe you're thinking of screaming at the TV at the three-on-two overlap. Or I know a number of people in Kirkpatrick in the last fortnight have had stomach bugs. So Wednesday morning, I was thinking, yeah, cheers for passing that one on. Uh, Or maybe you're a parent, and you look to your children, and you think, wow, they really do look like me, act like me. They've learned everything from me. But what we're trying to think of in terms of passing it on is this idea of wisdom or thought passing on from one generation down to the next. So examples of uh, the secret recipe for that perfect cake or the best spot on a river to catch a fish, or that ability to set a good open fire. All these things, this information that would be lost if it wasn't passed on. However, there are many things in our generation that are said to be dying out, things that haven't been passed on very well. So I asked around a few older, um, more skillful people than, than I am to get an idea of some. So sewing, letter writing, and changing a car tire. I actually asked a few of my friends, and remarkably few of them can change a car tire. But here's one that I find quite interesting. Roof thatching. So an intricate and complex skill, it used to be passed on father to son or workman to apprentice. But in recent years, it just hasn't been passed on. In fact, last summer, Scotland declared that they now have no traditional thatchers left in the country, and that the techniques of Scottish thatching have been lost forever. I don't know if this saddens you that thatching is dying out, but really it's not much of a surprise that it is. No one really needs thatching. It's a, a quaint relic from the past era, mildly interesting historically perhaps, but more trouble than it's worth on the most part and pretty irrelevant to life now. Does the gospel in Ulster fall into the same category as thatching? A quaint relic from a past era, mildly interesting historically, but more trouble than it's worth, and for the most part, pretty irrelevant to life today. So a lot of you will hopefully have seen um, our promotional flyer for this series in 2 Timothy. That's maybe why you've came along tonight. And from that flyer, you'll see that this evening's title is Can Anything Stop Christianity Dying Out? Especially as we think of our context here in East Belfast. And ask, are these the last days of Christianity in East Belfast? These are statistics um, you may be familiar with. We've used them before. I think it's important we keep them in mind when starting this series. In 2001, East Belfast Presbytery, the collection of Presbyterian churches in this part of the city, had 11,000 families listed as members. Eleven years later, in 2012, that figure is 7,500 families. And when you look at these churches and their age profiles, we can look to, say, 2020 and, say, put a figure between five and 6,000. So in 20 years a halving of Presbyterian church membership here in East Belfast. So I'll ask that question again. Are these the last days of Christianity in East Belfast? So 
So tide does seem to be turning in Northern Ireland. There's a growing secularization, but also an anti-church vitriol. You've maybe heard comments like this from friends or colleagues. All Christianity's done for this country is bring 800 years of hate and violence. We need to progress and leave it behind. Or you can't actually believe that in this day and age, can you? You may have even seen policies in your workplace about what you can and can't say to people about your beliefs change. So again, our title question, can anything stop Christianity dying out? So it may surprise you, but this was a question that was being asked near the end of the Apostle Paul's life. See, other teachings were beginning to become more popular. The gospel message that Paul taught, that was seen as rather primitive and outdated, a bit out of fashion. See, Paul had strong opponents, opponents who hoped that with Paul's imminent death would finally die his gospel message. Paul maybe looked at statistics similar to ours. So knowing this, and aware of what others were saying, and also aware of his own imminent death, Paul writes to his young friend Timothy, his last chance to react to the situation in the church, and if possible, he could fire out some last-ditch genius solution to their problem. So have a think. What would you write in your desperation and faced with your, your life goal, spreading the gospel, and that doesn't seem to be working, you've got one last chance. Well, it's going to be emotional, and it's going to be raw. So together, we're going to take some time now and read through the whole letter. And as we're reading through the letter, I want you to be looking out for a few things. Try and see what is the tone or emotion of what's going on in this letter. But have a wee look out for what the circumstances of Paul are and also the circumstances of Timothy. So if I get Martin and Esther up to, to read for us. And if you want to turn in your pew Bibles to page 1195 and the beginning of 2 Timothy. To Timothy. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as my forefathers did, with a clear conscience, as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I have been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord, or ashamed of me, his prisoner. But join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. 
This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Saviour, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet I am not ashamed, because I know whom I have believed, and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. What you have heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching, with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well in how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. Endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. Similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. The hard-working farmer should be the first to receive of the crop. Reflect on what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel, for which I am suffering to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here is a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Keep reminding them of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter, because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have wandered away from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place, and they destroy the faith of some. 
Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription, The Lord knows those who are his. And everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. In a large house there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for noble purposes, some for ignoble. If a man cleanses himself from the latter, he will be an instrument of noble purpose, made wholly useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. Flee the evil desires of youth, and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the name of the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments, because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servants must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with them. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth. Just as Janes and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these men opposed the truth, men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far because, as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, 
so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desire, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Do your best to come to me quickly. For Demas, because of his love of this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Uh, Titus to Dalmatia only Luke is with me get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry I sent Titus to Ephesus when you come bring the cloak that I left at Capus with Capus at Troas and my scrolls especially the parchments Alexander the uh, metal worker did me great harm the Lord will repay him for what he has done you too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposes our message. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Priscilla and Aquila and the household of Nisiphorus. Erastus stayed in Corinth and I left Trophimus sick in Miletus. Do your best to get here before winter. Eubulus greets you and so does Pudens, Linus, Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. Thanks very much for reading. Now, while uh, the passage is still fresh in your heads, I want you to get in groups roughly where you're sitting, about five or six together, and discuss a few things. So we have some of these questions that are up on the screen. So if I could maybe ask this side of the church, if you and your groups can look at what are Paul's personal circumstances, what you're able to see from his life from the book to 2 Timothy. And if I can ask then this half of the church, if you can look at what are Timothy's circumstances and what's the circumstances in the church in Ephesus to see if we can get an understanding of that. And also you can discuss what the general tone or emotion of the letter was. So I'll give you a few minutes to do that. It's 
good to hear plenty of discussion going on, so hopefully we'll have a few answers. Um, so if I can ask this side of the church first about some of the things that we've learnt about Paul, what we've found out, and Sam's going to come around with the mic, so put a, put a hand up if just anything that you, you see in the passage or in the book about the circumstances of Paul. Um, we, we saw some positive things that were going on and some negative ones, so yep. true Ulster fashion, we'll deal with the negatives. Um, <laughs> so we found that he was imprisoned, uh, that he'd been deserted by lots of people. In fact, he says oh, everybody's deserted him except for Luke, uh, that he'd been harmed, actually, or his message had been harmed by some people. Uh, but yet through it all, we saw lots of positives as well, but maybe I'll let others highlight those. Okay. Um, does anyone want to highlight any positives, or there's maybe some more negatives either, if you'd prefer? Chapter 3, he's saying, you ain't seen nothing yet. If you think things are bad now, they're going to be much, much worse. Yeah, so just to repeat that for everybody, Stanley's saying that things are going to get much worse. Yeah, you ain't seen nothing yet. Things are going to get much worse. Um, so there is, that is, that is really going for the negative. Um, okay, we will go cross over and we'll now ask about some of the, what we've learned about Timothy or the church at Ephesus. Um, well, the, probably the, this most obvious thing to us, and, and we dwelt on this, was the ongoing presence of false teachers, people who were um, still opposing the kind of gospel that, that Paul was teaching. We tried to work out what, what they meant uh, or what, what Paul's comments about them mean. He said that they say that the resurrection has already taken place uh -huh. and so they destroy the faith of some. Um, we weren't entirely sure uh, what that meant, but we, we wondered if some of them had too too strong a view of heaven having already come to earth, um, Christians being perfected, something like that. And, and of course, Paul talks instead about how a person who's true to the gospel will still expect to suffer a lot. So there seems to be a contrast there. Some people saying the resurrection's already happened. Paul saying, wait a minute, there's a lot we still need to go through. Um, so. Yeah. Thanks, Christoph. Um, that's going to continue to be a main theme as we go through to Timothy, working out what that means. Um, any takers for any more comments? Yeah, at the front. Should we go? Yeah. Um, in terms of Timothy, I was thinking, you know, um, it seems that maybe Timothy was prone to fear. Um, or there was something going on there uh, when we read in chapter 1 that um, for God gave us a spirit not of fear but of power and of love and self-control um, and there's obviously an emphasis upon Timothy's, Timothy's gifting when he's reminded to fan into flame the gift of God um, yeah. yeah that's great and also we've got the repeated words of ashamed as well throughout the book um, that's great. Thanks, thanks for doing that in your groups and for feeding back. Um, you can see up on the overhead, I just put down a few verses with references from things we can learn from Paul. Um, we did a pretty good job covering a lot of those. Um, note that he doesn't have a coat. We also learned that. 
Um, if we can flick on, we can see some stuff about Timothy and the church in the next slides. Uh, so Timothy, yeah, he needs that strengthening, uh, as Robbie identified. Um, he's got opponents, and he faces quarrels within the church. As we look at the slide then, the next slide on the church, there, the claim that there's no resurrection, that seems to be um, at the heart of what these false teachers who are in Ephesus are saying, and they don't, aren't interested in the truth. So all in all, Paul's circumstances aren't great, and Timothy's in a way seem to mirror that. They're not great there either. And I, I mentioned about that word ashamed, how that seems to be repeated throughout the letter. See, the people there could be ashamed in a few ways. They were ashamed of Paul, and they were ashamed of the gospel. Ashamed of Paul because he's weak, he's in chains, and a message from a convict doesn't carry much weight in a first century world. There's maybe an important cultural difference here. We're used to hearing about martyrs, if you've been about church, and we can almost see Paul is in chains and think straight away hero. But that's not what first century would have thought. They would have thought straight away disgrace. See, our culture maybe also has a bit of a conscience for the oppressed. So we look at the regime in Burma, how they imprisoned Aung San Suu Kyi, and we see her as a hero. She gets the Nobel Prize and she, the US Congressional Medal. And we hold her up as a hero because she is endured through suffering in prison. But the first century context, prison meant you're despised. Prison, chains, death, all these things reflect weakness. So in a shame and honor culture, you don't want weakness reflecting on you. So that's why we see all these people abandon Paul. They want nothing to do with his weakness. Likewise, the gospel itself is seen as weakness to these people. The gospel says suffering first and then glory. At the heart, there's a man dying on a cross. And this is just appalling to a first century mind. So that's why the, the false teachers, and Christoph put his finger on it, they, they stress that the resurrection has already happened. That is the resurrection of Christians. So they want to claim that we're strong now. We've got benefits now. Um, they didn't see that it had to be suffering first and then glory. And also in a city like Ephesus, the gospel as Paul taught it would mean you'd stand out. Ephesus was this great multicultural city very religious and prosperous city. So acting like a Christian, that's going to make you stand out like a sore thumb. You'd just be another weak, delusional little Paul. So during the intro, I was trying to draw some of the parallels between our situation here in Belfast and the situation in Ephesus and how the gospel is getting on there. I said how our culture, it doesn't, well, to its credit, it doesn't vilify the oppressed or minorities. In fact, our culture does have, on the most part, a good conscience for people in the minority. So then how is it that in our culture we can make someone seem weak or discredit their views? Well, what you do is you label, put a label on someone that shows they're the one that oppresses minorities. So the first century, they, you were the minority, but for us, you're the one who oppresses the minority. So bigot, racist, homophobe, narrow-minded, or intolerant. These are the labels of our day 
to discredit someone. And the second main way you discredit someone in our culture, you laugh at them. You make a joke of them. Satire is a a powerful tool. Read the Guardian newspaper, and it's all cartoons and jokes about David Cameron. Read the Telegraph, and it's funny photographs of Ed Miliband. Watch or read anything, and the church is a figure of fun. So when you think of these two ways that our, church, our culture makes people look weak and their arguments are relevant, I think we can begin to understand how we become ashamed of the gospel, how we can be like the Ephesian church. We're ashamed to claim absolute truth or even just to have an opinion that relates to our faith for fear of being called narrow-minded or judgmental. We're ashamed to let people, we actually believe what the Bible says and what it teaches on everything for the ridicule it might lead to. It's no fun to be the butt of the office jokes. We're ashamed to stand out and act distinctively in social occasions with friends because our number one priority is to prove to people how normal Christians are and we think standing out in any way should be avoided. Even think of the word gospel. What does that bring to mind? Gospel tract, the gospel tent, the gospel service, gospel street preachers. These terms can almost seem archaic of the old Ulster, part of the language that if we heard someone on TV use it, we'd maybe cringe a little bit. I think we know shame all too well. Although how we get ashamed is different, we're in fact in the same boat as Ephesus. And like Timothy, the danger of shame is that we'll stop our Christian witness. So Paul writes this letter to Timothy. He wants to build him up. He wants to encourage him and help him to go on further, to leave his shame behind, to say there's no reason to be ashamed. For now, tonight, maybe we can only diagnose our shame. But as we work through this letter, we're going to begin to see how to overcome it. But return to our title for tonight again. Can anything stop Christianity dying out? Now, if I took a poll of this room, there might be a whole range of answers to this. Maybe that's part of the problem. We're, we're divided on how to stop the decline. But, but hopefully we can agree here on this point. There are strong similarities between our situation and the situation in Ephesus. So Paul's advice to Ephesus, to Timothy there, is worth us listening to today for us to apply. So Paul, close to death, last chance to keep the gospel of Jesus Christ alive. What does he give as his killer method? Maybe you spotted it. Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Oh, groan. (laughs) That's the type of embarrassing thing we're ashamed of. Part of that old Ulster language that we're trying to escape. But that is the only way that Paul sees the gospel not dying out. Paul has passed it on to Timothy, and Timothy is here being entrusted with it so he can pass it on to others, so he can preach to others. So from a position of weakness, a position of disunity, how do we influence people for the gospel? It's by passing it on one 
to one to one. That's why we've invited you all here tonight. We've invited leaders of our gospel organizations, of DBGB, Friendship Club, Sunday Club. Passing on is what your organizations are trying to do. One person passing on the gospel to another and training them up in it, proclaiming the word of God. You show people the gospel with the faith that they'll pick it up and grasp it themselves. But of course, this isn't just for leaders in gospel organizations. Gospel work is significantly broader than that. As anyone who's been in discipleship groups recently will know, we've been thinking about our front lines. That is the places where we spend our time between Monday and Saturday, outside of church, where we're interacting with people all the time, and how we can be used by God in these places. This could be with our neighbors and our families, but also with our hairdresser or the lollipop man. The idea of passing it on fits into all these situations too. We can all be involved in gospel work day to day as we pass it on to those we meet. In this letter, Timothy is being called to train up gospel workers to pass it on. And that's essentially what we're trying to do with this whole series and to Timothy. We want to train you up so that you can pass it on. So you can be part of this great lineage of faith. You can join in the line, a worker for the gospel. One pass to one, pass to one. I hope that coming tonight has really inspired you as you heard the words of 2 Timothy read, that it has spoke to you. But that title, gospel worker, that may seem in your head a bit grand. You may think that doesn't really apply to me. That's not how I think of myself. There could be a few doubts keeping you back from that. The first doubt could itself be in the gospel, one that the gospel can connect with people. That might be a major doubt. But the second doubt may just simply be in our own ability to do the work of a gospel worker. On that first point, that's something we're going to consider as we go through the series. We want to show you on every night that the gospel is relevant, not just to some parts of our life, but to every part of our life. In fact, it's the only thing that makes sense of our life. And I hope tonight you've maybe even begun to see a small example of that, of how the Bible can speak into a context. We've been thinking of our context in East Belfast, the church in decline, how we're ashamed of the gospel, and yet we see that there's a similar example in the Bible that can speak direct to us. See, the Bible can connect, and we're only going to see more and more of that as we progress through this book. The second point when we doubt our ability. It does sound like a big job passing on the gospel. And this letter makes sure to tell us it's going to be hard work. There's a good chance there's going to be suffering involved. Does that sell it to you? It's going to be difficult. But we will be able to do it. And I can say that with confidence. These evening services are designed to equip us so that we will be able to do it. And you'll be pleased to know we're going to be using the best resource available. So it's not just what Sam, Christoph, and I have concocted up the back. We've actually got a proper resource to be working through in this series. And this is how the resource describes itself. All scripture is God-breathed 
and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And that's chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. That seems exactly what we need. Something to equip us for the task of a gospel worker when we don't feel that we're able to do it. That bit at the end, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We're going to be placing our confidence fully in the power of God's word taught to build us up and to equip us for this task he has for us. But to, be, to, but to finish, there's one final motivation, and this continues throughout the book of 2 Timothy. It's a motivation that Paul draws on himself to get through the horrendous circumstances he was in that you discover tonight. No coat, no friends, close to death. And the motivation can be seen right in the very first book, verse verse of the book. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. So by the will of God shows he's trusting in God no matter what, but the part we're really interested in is the next bit. According to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. That's what keeps Paul going amidst this terrible suffering. The promise of life to come in heaven. See, we aren't fighting a battle, toiling and working for the gospel now until death. We're fighting and toiling until life. We do everything under the promise of the life that we will receive. We've already heard some of that tonight in what we've read. Again, in chapter 4, verse 1, when Paul is giving his charge, the most difficult task, in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge, preach the word. So it's all in view of the appearing kingdom. We can undertake a difficult task like preaching the gospel in a hostile environment because we have a bigger picture in mind. Christ's appearing and his kingdom, our future in heaven. So at the beginning of tonight, I asked, are these the last days of Christianity? The answer is yes. That's what Paul wants Timothy to remember. But it's not the last days because the church is about to die. It's the last days because the next big event to happen in salvation history is Jesus appearing. See, knowing this truth is to impact how we live. It means we have an eye always on the promise of life that Christ has for us. We know he's going to appear. As Paul tells us in chapter 3, the last days are terrible. It's going to be tough work. But like a farmer, like a soldier, or like an athlete, we go through the hard work to receive the great prize at the end, that promise of life. That's why it's great the resurrection hasn't happened already. That's why the false teachers were so wrong. It's because we've got a hope to look forward to. If this world was all there is, then there'd be no point to do gospel work. But because we believe in Christ's everlasting kingdom in heaven, we can do this gospel work and with confidence. So I hope the reality of our problem together is clear to you. Statistically, the gospel is on the decline in East Belfast. 
But the only people who can do anything about that are a group of timid, not very impressive, sometimes ashamed believers. That's, that's us, by the way. But God has a way for us to reach people, for the gospel to be received by others. We pass it on. It'll mean hard work. It'll be tough at times. It may be a rocky journey. But it's a journey that we will get through to King Jesus and the realization of his promise to us of life with him in heaven. Let's pray.